Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Craig Root, who is the Director of Investment Governance and Risk at Deloitte. Craig, welcome to the show. Hi, Vauda. Great to be here. In this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about governance and especially sort of in the context of super funds and with a link to internalization, because we basically talked about this topic a little bit before where we, we sort of explore the ideas, well, if you internalize asset management, investment functions um, in a super fund, there's a whole different world that opens up that you need to think about and that you have to have sort of clear rules uh, around. So maybe we can sort of uh, discuss at a high level first, wh- what are some of these key pitfalls that you see, particularly from a governance point of view? Yeah, I think one. I think the most critical thing about it is that when you move to it, it's, it's a, you know, it's almost the reverse of when you start off with a function that you choose to outsource. You've got to make sure you understand what's involved so you can go away and write the contracts correctly and select the right service providers. When a fund commences or anybody, any asset owner goes down that path of choosing to internalise part or all of the investment management process, they're doing that in reverse. So they've got to really understand how their business is changing because they're going to go from a business of determining strategy, determining possibly the asset allocation, having some broad, you know, investment criteria that they then go and apply to the managers that they employ and then really managing through the contracts. Now, we use other words, but that's ultimately what's happening. Once you start doing these activities yourself, you then need to understand now you're in the business of trading. You're in the business of buying and selling assets. You're in the business, you know, depending on how far you go, of getting into infrastructure and those types of things. And I think that's the most critical thing. And then you start saying, well, what do we need to be able to do that? It's having the right people, having the right set of skills on the board to understand that different business and then understanding what different control structures do you actually need. Because now that you have a group of people who are investing your money who work for you, you're going to need a separate group to actually do the monitoring and the reporting on what they do. And those are probably two really... And then you start getting to all the other management issues around things like how do you determine the right... um, We call a benchmark selection. How are you determining the correct benchmarks to measure them against? How are you actually measuring success? And importantly, like with any project or set of projects, what's the success criteria? How are you going to determine that your internalization journey has been a success? And when will you be measuring that? Yeah. So in, in essence, basically, you move to a situation where 
the, the services you employ are at arm's length, and suddenly you lose that little bit of independence. It, it all becomes one big family, and that's often where it can get quite convoluted. I think we've heard uh, criticism before around it's much harder to fire an internal team than an external mm. team. Mm. Um, but, but what you mentioned about the contracts as well is that you basically have to have a level of trust mm. in the internal investment team to do the right thing um, and to perform well, whereas before it was more written down and sort of black and white. How do you go about creating like a proper framework around it? Yeah, no, uh, no, it's a really good point. I think the um, it's interesting that you raise the point that with an external provider you'll always have a contract. And if we think about, you know, this is this is actually a traditional management problem. We need to write down what the expectations are. We need to explain how we're going to measure them, and then we actually need to go through that process of measuring them. So the first thing is. What are, why are we, when I say engaging, why have we employed this internal team? What job do we want them to do? So if we think, if we roll it back up a level, there's an investment strategy we're trying to achieve. This team is being tasked with carrying out a part of that investment strategy. And so how do we determine what it is we want them to do? The other part of that, of course, is this isn't just now go away and invest in, let's say, Australian equities. It's not just about what mandate. You'll have the equivalent of a mandate You'll have an internal mandate with your own team to specify these are the rules. You will need to have your own limit structures. You'll need to have, you know, your, I'll call it your allocation limits. You'll, you'll need to have the bandings that you permit. So that's got to be decided at the appropriate level. I mean, depending on exactly the scale of the organisation, the level of detail that gets decided at the board, at the sector head level, at the CIO level is going to vary. But what's really important then is tying it back and saying this is actually what we expected this team to do you know if, if we have to have our own dealing desk what are the rules that govern how the dealers operate and how are we going to evaluate all of these people there's an element of it that gets into what i would call your traditional hr problems because again if the team doesn't perform if they don't perform and leaving aside now there's there's all the technical issues about performance measurement but if they don't perform you're going to have to manage that situation. That's a group of people that you have to manage. It's certainly harder to fire people that you work with every day and it's actually harder to fire people than to just terminate the contract of a service provider. You know, now for some people maybe it's not, but for most of us it's actually a harder... And there's reasons for that, right? It's actually supposed to be a hard... It's not supposed to be easy when you go away and decide you've got to terminate someone, which of course is the most extreme solution. But before that... There's all of the questions. Yeah, there's going to be that measurement approach where we can actually say this is what's occurring. This is what we would expect to occur. Why is there this difference? You know, and that's you know, if we roll back, though, it also links to the performance measurement system. So really critically, with any type of mandate, whether it's an internal mandate or an external mandate, you've got to have the right sort of uh, measures there. You know, you can't expect people to hug the index if you're also expecting them to outperform by five percent per annum. You know, if you're expecting them to not invest in fossil fuels, then that will lead to a different performance to the index. Yeah. So you need to be clear that you don't have conflicting targets. Absolutely. So in the early days when um, mm. I think Australian Super started to yeah. um, internalise their asset management functions, mm. their head of equities, Ines McKint, uh, I, I asked him at one stage this question around, you know, how do you deal with if your team starts not performing, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's much harder. And he said, no, 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 the, the solution is very simple. You don't have to fire the team. You just have to fire me. 
Like you only have to fire the top person. You don't have to get rid of everybody. Do you reckon it's as easy as that? You just fire the CEO who doesn't go well? <laughs> I think it's... Um I would never say it's it's quite that simple because I think in a situation, in any situation... Now, I want to be clear, I think when Ennis gave that answer, that was I, I can only assume that was the correct answer in the context of Australian super and his role as head of equities. Really critically, you need to understand what is the actual... And one of the key things is you've got to understand have the leaders actually been given the latitude and the capability because you actually can have that problem where the CIO does not actually have the latitude to actually do what they need to do to try and deliver on the strategy. Then don't complain about the outcome. So I think in any situation where it's not working, you actually need to understand why it's not working. And then you can get to, is it because of the actual uh, strategy we, we gave them? Were the instructions unclear? Were the objectives conflicting? Was it in fact very clear? And yes, it was clear they did it but then they did not execute it correctly. Well, what does that actually mean? Uh, is it because we think there's a cultural problem that's emerged within the team? Then maybe it is about the leader. Unfortunately, and this comes back to that point though, you know, I remember it was actually my first year of uni. My management studies lecturer said, in management there are no quick fixes. And if, if it's not going right, and I know that's kind of the black version, but if it's not working, you need to actually understand why it's not working. If we think of performance measurement without getting into all of the specifics, you need to understand what's the performance and why is that performance there. Just telling telling someone that yeah, it's it's above or below the index doesn't tell you. It tells you the outcome, but it doesn't actually tell you why. Yeah, yeah. So you need to identify the problem before Absolutely. you can start thinking about the solution. So is there sort of a best practice around how this is done? Because mm. you know, internalizing is is quite a, a, a long process. Yeah. I know it has been done in Canada. Mm. Uh, it has been done in the US uh, as well before. But there's not a lot of data points around mm. does this work or not. Yeah. Um, is there best practice? Well, I think, um, you know, I'm always nervous at the term best practice because practice is evolving. But I think one of the keys is roll right back and say, what are you actually trying to achieve? Because I think if you're starting with the wrong reason, that's going to be – that's not going to be conducive to good outcomes. So one of the things, for example, is are you doing it because everyone else is doing it? Well, that's a bad reason to do it, you know. Are you doing it because, you know, the chief investment officer told you it was a good idea and you believed them? Well, why would they be wanting to do it? So I think, and it sounds silly, but the most critical thing is understanding the why. The why is always the most critical reason. What are we trying to achieve by internalising? Now, is it because we want to reduce cost? Is it because we want to develop new strategies that have limited capacity? And so we don't want to have to share the capacity with other asset owners. We want the capacity to ourselves. Um, you know, and I think what that then tells you is what capabilities do you actually need? Because if your objective is just to ram down costs, now we can argue about how effective that's actually going to be, but what the skills you require if your objective is to ram down costs to reduce fees is very different to the skills you need if it's about identifying unique strategies and then implementing those strategies. I think in the context of Australia, one thing that is often mentioned in this context as well is, is capacity, that yeah. you simply just run out of capacity very quickly mm. in the local market. So to a degree, it does make sense to do it internally because there is the belief there is some alpha mm. to be had in the Australian market. So passive is not necessarily a great option either. Mm. What do you think are good reasons mm. for internalization? Yeah, I, look, I certainly think the the whole capacity question is is definitely if you believe 
And so this does tie to your investment beliefs as well as your own, what I would call your internal, I'll call them your internal social beliefs or your internal corporate beliefs. So if you believe that there's alpha to be harvested but you have to work for it uh, and you have to identify unique strategies, then that's clearly one, one reason that makes sense. Another reason is if you believe that, so, so one of the benefits that people have internalised say, and especially people who did this earlier, is that having people who are closer to the market helps them understand the market dynamics better. And they actually find that that even helps them with their asset allocation. It helps them with the higher, I'll call them the higher level decisions, I mean the more asset level, asset class level decisions. So another reason would be if you believe that due to what you're doing, you're going to get a lot of access to the market. Another reason would be if you believe for whatever reason you happen to have access to a specific skill set that can get applied. And what I mean by that is we know there are some asset classes where a large proportion of the returns don't come just from the buying and selling decision but actually come from how you execute within that strategy. You know, property is one. Um, private equity is another. I mean, you know, that's, that's proven to be much harder for asset owners to actually internalise and do themselves, private equity. But certainly we've seen that occur with property. So that's another reason for the internalisation. And of course, you know, ultimately you may believe that at the top level it's going to lead to cost efficiencies. I don't think it's so much about just ramming down the fees, but it is about the cost efficiencies and getting better control over your overall... Um, and it even comes down to things like liquidity management. You can get a better insight of all the cash flows, all of the assets. Um, and so those are sort of the reasons that support internalisation. But I, I'd also stress it isn't a... Um, I don't think we should just assume it's all, uh, oh, that's the way you should go. Right? There's good reasons why some choose not to go down that path. Yeah, I think what you mentioned about being closer to the market is interesting yeah. as well because I think from some of the funds that have gone on the journey, mm. that's one of the key benefits that I see, that yeah. not only do they see more deals, mm. but having actually an internal trading team um, leads to cost efficiencies in itself because they have different ways of implementing trades. So I think sort of a classic example is that if you are, you know, take a positive view on, on Tesla, mm. it not, might not necessarily be the best idea to buy the shares. Maybe you, you create uh, an overlay, mm. maybe a synthetic exposure, maybe there are some swaps that are more interesting. And if you have an internal team, that is much easier to sort of identify and implement than when you're removed from that. Um, so the cost savings are not simply just mm. let's push down the... the you know the the management expense of mm. of that. It's it's also just understanding better the the, the technicalities by implementing trades. Um, but as you go down that path, obviously mm. these things start to become much more complex. Yeah. And if we bring it back to sort of that mm. board level where yeah. where the oversight function yes. uh, truly sits. Yes. How much do you think that the board composition needs to change in terms of the level of technical skill, mm, mm. specific financial skill yeah. uh, associated to have that proper oversight role? I certainly think boards always need to look at the composition of skills given how the environment changes and given how their business changes. And I, and I think one of these, and to your point, Voucher, I think one of these questions always comes up, which is, oh, but how much do boards need to be in the detail? They should be managing strategy. They should be managing direction. They should be putting in the right management team. And that's absolutely right. And then the question is, how much do they need to know to be able to set and monitor the strategy and to be able to put the right people in the right roles? 
And that then determines the level of, I'll call it, technical skill that's required. And so I think it's not necessarily a case of, you know, if you have 2% of your fund devoted to, you know, uh, relative value arbitrage, that you need someone on the board who understands relative value arbitrage in detail. What you do need is you need people who can understand the basic business principles being applied by your business, what can actually drive and impact your strategy. Those are the things that the board needs to be able to understand. So there is a degree to which a board needs to understand if we're going to get into certain types of asset classes beyond a certain point, there will be a certain level of knowledge that's required. If part of our value creation is actually due to specific trading strategies, there's a point at which the board needs to understand that. But really importantly is the board need to understand, needs to understand the business implications. So to your point about the complexity as we get involved in more and more different and complicated things, it's not just about do we have an investment team? You mentioned do we have the right dealing team? But what else do we need? Well, we're going to need the right IT systems. We're going to need the right people to manage the operational risk, the cyber risk. Do we have the, the market risk management people who can actually develop and implement the right sort of limit framework. You know, what are what are the relations between, because if we go back even to the GFC, and most of this was about banks, but what are, you know, how's the role of risk management fitting in? Where are they coming into the process? Where are they not? How does our, as we call it, the first line or the second line work? All of those types of issues. So there's a need, I would say, for some greater technical knowledge, but what's really critical is understanding what's that business you know, I think we could go back to the GFC and if you compare sort of Lehman and, and Goldman's, right, you know, and, and independence is a topic that comes up a lot. Well, they both have the same proportion of independence on their board. But if we looked at the people on the board of Lehman, you know, the independent directors, you know, if they were, had been CEOs, they hadn't been in financial services, they'd been in a range of other industries, some were, you know, maybe a theatre director or, you know, you'd had a range of people in a range of roles. If we looked at the board of Goldman at the time, the independent directors were people who'd been, you know, very senior roles in banks, partners in private equity firms. Now, what that meant was that they could understand the business that those organisations were in. So they could understand enough about what are the business implications, what are the financial and business risks of doing the sorts of things they were doing. And I think that's where the board's got to make sure it's got the right mix of skills. Yeah, I, I asked... Um Claude Lamoureux, who was basically one of the architects of the Canadian model, the yeah. former CEO of the Ontario yeah. Teachers uh, uh, Pension Fund, um, about this. And I said, you know, what, what level of technical skill do they have? And he had sort of a similar answer where um, he said the board, he thinks, needs to be people that have been around in the investment industry yeah. and preferably people that have seen a crisis or two because they will understand where the risks will pop up. They will understand sort of that higher level uh, framework and they don't need to be super technically yeah. adept, but they need to understand the basics of how the investment industry works. Mm. And so I, I sort of confronted him with the Australian model uh, and, and the push for independent mm. uh, directors and mm. he didn't really see that as a particularly good thing. Do you think that the trend towards getting uh, you know, a third of directors being independent on boards stand in the way of potentially having boards that have that can execute their oversight role properly mm. when they internalise? I don't believe it's a barrier. Um, having said that though, Valda, I also don't believe 
that of its own, that's a solution. Now, I think, now if I recall correctly, when, when Jeremy Cooper brought this up during the super review, my understanding is that he actually phrased it as all boards should have the right to get a third of independent directors. And I think the purpose of that, if I recall correctly, was so that they could get the skills they required on the board. So I don't believe having one-third independence is um, a barrier to getting the right skills on the board. But equally, if your biggest concern is getting the right skills on the board, then mandating, which we weren't, which isn't happening, but if, if you were to mandate, let's just say, if you were to mandate one-third independent directors, are you going to suddenly wind up with all the right people on boards? Well, no, you won't. You know, and I think the... Um, you know, because again, both Goldman and Lehman, they met, I think it was the New York Stock Exchange rules for the proportion of independent directors. So independence is important, but, you know, it isn't, I would say it's not sufficient. We need people who actually have the right skills and the right understanding. And I think it's often characterised as this, you know, you'll, you'll hear two different versions. So one version is, oh, well, you know, no, we can't have independence. We need people who understand the business. Well, that's probably not quite true. I think, you know, we need to make sure we've got the right level of independence, but we need to make sure we've got the right skills. They're two different questions. Um, but equally to say, well, you know, we don't have the right skills on the board, so we need more independence, to me that's not answering the question. Yeah. If, you, if you have a skills deficit, to put it crudely, then that's what you solve. That language, though, of uh, having the right to an independent board is probably more uh, Jeremy's uh, lawyer background coming out rather than <laughs> making a clear call on that. <laughs> but anyway, um, so let, let's look at it as sort of a very practical way. Um, we, we use the example of uh, Russia and the invasion in the Ukraine as sort of an example of how yeah. government governance should and yeah. should not work. Mm. And I think you sort of made a comment that, you know, by the time the invasion yeah. was happening, if yeah. you then still had to divest, you're too late. Yes. Then, then the, the governance structure has broken down. Yeah. Can you explain that? Yeah, sure. Well, I think it comes back to the purpose of risk management isn't to tell everybody what went wrong after the event. Like that's kind of important. You want to know what you did wrong or what the cause was ideally. But the idea behind it is that you know, if we think, and if we pick Russia as an example, if we think this is an exposure that we don't want to have or that we want to limit, then we've got to do that in advance. You know, the idea of having, if we just think of a credit limit framework, the reason for a credit limit framework or any type of credit risk framework, in fact, is not so that we can go away and start selling things once they've already fallen over. The idea is to, one, not get too exposed to something, and then two, to actually start managing that when you start seeing the warning signs. And so that's part of what, you know, if, you, if we think of the evolution of risk management, you know, once upon a time it was about having limit frameworks and they're very important, but it's also about, well, what are the warning signs? And so I think in the case of Russia, there were really two key things that to avoid having that problem, or well, there's actually three things. So number one is what is your limits on exposure? So that if it goes wrong, it's not, you know, this is the amount we lose. The second element of that is, you know, how have we determined whether we even want to be there or not? You know, and I think those are the things. It's sort of that combination of, I would call, a geopolitical risk. Um, it's, it's, it, it borrows your concepts from credit risk. But I think one of these things with all of the, you know, we call it ESG, but, you know, if we think of this, this is actually a governance risk. So one governance risk that often gets spoken about is the dominant CEO. Well, we here have the, have the dominant CEO of a country. So, so it's really about identifying which things we want exposure to. Then it's about identifying 
How do we manage that exposure? Do we limit it? What's the monitoring we do? And then ideally, what are the warning signs? Now, with all of those things, part of why you have a limit framework is there's times you get it wrong and you're going to get caught and you'll have a write-off or a write-down. This this is sort of particularly interesting, I think, from the context of, of the current regulations. Yeah. And since you are a former EPRA employee, I'm particularly interested to get your view on um, you know, the impact of your future, your super yeah. on governance, because yeah. the situation we described mm. um, is you can only really do something about it if you are comfortable yeah. with having a certain level of tracking error, yeah. a certain different strategy mm. from the benchmark. Mm. And I think arguably your future, your super is pushing uh, funds closer to the benchmark. Mm. They want to avoid tracking error, mm. and it's 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 a real existential risk for them because yeah. you only have to fail twice and you're gone. And I think in the past we've seen even sometimes failing once is enough to mm. uh, um, basically for funds to have to shut yeah. up shop. Do you see there's a, a, a danger there to being able to properly manage your governance? Mm. I, I wouldn't say so much about managing your governance, but certainly about managing your risks. So what your future your super does is. It has created what I'll call a regulatory risk. It's created a a different objective that every fund has to manage to. Now, we can argue about the rights and wrongs of that, but the reality is that if you are operating in superannuation in Australia, you have to look at what your future, your super says. And the requirement of your future, your super simply is that your implementation has to be sufficiently efficient, I'll call it, or sufficiently effective, rather, that you won't underperform, you know, the the the, um, the reference portfolio by more than 50 basis points over a period of time. So that's just the reality you have to deal with. Now, what that means, though, is that that will become... It does mean that relative performance, if we think about the, the weighting and the importance that boards attach to different things, the relative importance suddenly becomes so much more. That's it. And the tracking error actually has to be considered much more. When you, do, when you then decide, so it, it does take the focus away from or it reduces the focus on what I would call the primary risk management, which is what's the risk of permanent loss of capital as well as what's the risk of getting the wrong sort of return path, you know, given where we're putting. So the risk budget must be reallocated. Well, it doesn't have to be, but then you, you're running a big risk if you don't. And so that's the, the reality. It leads to a changing of priority. And we've, there are funds that have said to us, point blank, well... You know, we don't like it, but that's the way it is. You know, that's that's the rule we live under. In a sense, you could say that every superannuation fund is given a mandate by the government and the government has, and I want to be really clear, I'm not sort of saying whether I agree or not, but the, the government has chosen to modify that mandate to re-emphasise relative performance. And so, and, and then what you're doing is if you're going to do different things, you've got to think about, okay, what's my tracking error? And so everyone has to decide how much am I prepared to wear these types of risks? I mean, a lot of work gets done looking at what's the probability of failing the test if we have this sort of tracking error when looking at the other risks. So it becomes more of that balancing act. Where do you think that the main issues are? Because to a degree, if you look at sort of a high level at at the performance test, it's basically the model of a reference portfolio where, you know, you set a level of... uh, um, the benchmark, yeah. this is the cheapest way that you yeah. can implement it without having any skill. Yeah. So you choose the asset allocation, you implement it in the cheapest way, mm. do better than that. Yeah. Th- that sort of concept is, yes. is not so controversial. Yeah. Um, is it 
in this variation of the 50 basis points, which basically people have said that's more like enhanced passive than an active management strategy, or, or are there other things where you think this mm. test is, is falling short? Oh, I think there's probably two or three things. I think one of the issues is, of course, it's widely accepted that, you know, and, and we can go back and find the studies to support this, I couldn't quote them to you right now, but between 80% and 90% of returns come from the asset allocation decision, as in the strategic asset allocation decision. What's being measured is how effectively the asset allocation is implemented. You know, and I think the extreme example's been given that, well, if someone's asset allocation is 100% to cash, now, okay, granted, you can fall foul of the investment governance standard potentially if you do that, but you could have 100% allocation to cash and you'll pass, you know you could pursue a different strategy which actually tries to generate some returns, okay, and then you could potentially fail. And so that crude example where, you know, you could have a much higher rate of return for the members, a strategy that is actually more appropriate for the needs of the members, but you're in fact more likely to fail this, I'll call this technical test that you can get failed on, that probably shows the flaw in, this, in, in that framework. And I would also say that that aspect has never been addressed. Like we've never, there hasn't been anything actually said that, well, yeah, that's true, but we're going to deal with that in this other way. That's actually not been said. It's just, it's kind of left. So that, that's one element. I think the other element, you can argue about the degree to which the, um, that 50 basis points is the right number because certainly it's an implementation test, which is important. Um, so we're focusing on implementation, not the strategy. Then the second question then is, okay, well, what's the 50 basis points? You know, I think, you know, we know that people who, you know, have a tracking error of even 3 or 4% are going to have a 25% chance of failing. That's pretty significant. It doesn't actually get into, well, why has someone underperformed? You know, so if I think of one of the funds that, that failed, um, you know, they had adopted a strategy where they took risk through the asset allocation but they then manage the risk within each asset allocation. Now from, you know, we had pretty much, for most of, most of the 2010s, we had a risk on environment. What that meant was if you choose, chose to take less risk in any asset class or in all asset classes, you were going to underperform. And I think that demonstrates how crude that test is. Because if we think about investment governance from first principles, if we think about a super fund or any asset owner appointing an investment manager, the answer when they fall short isn't to say, right, your first warning, right, second warning, okay, you're out. The answer is, well, hang on, why did you fall short? And if the answer was, well, hang on, you told us to get a low beta portfolio, we got you your low beta portfolio, but because what that means is on the upside it lags and on the downside it outperforms and the market ran up so we underperformed, which is what you paid us to do. In fact, in that circumstance, a manager who outperformed probably should be sacked or should be getting asked questions. Yeah. And I think that's one of the other problems. It doesn't look into the why. It doesn't even create... So it hasn't even created what I would call a rebuttable presumption. So a rebuttable presumption that, well, you failed this test, well, you probably are going to get lined up, but we're going to actually work out what's going on here. Yeah. And, you know, so even... You know, it's not even a situation where the regulator then has the right to terminate you. The regulator actually has the obligation to terminate you. 
Yeah. So it's it's basically the difference between have there been mistakes made? Yes. Or is it purely, you know, all the processes were properly followed, but the investment environment has worked in a certain way? Yeah. Or you just have a different member base that is, right. is more conservative? That's it's correct. Maybe older. That's correct. Um, they don't all have the same profile, and yeah. they certainly don't. There's no one size fits all for for every uh, uh, member. Mm. Is there a way to fix this test? Do you think? Well, I think my, and one method that has been suggested is to actually convert it from the regulator having the obligation to the convert to the regulator having the right. You know, because I certainly think the test as a test to identify potential problems is actually very good. You know, certainly if someone's lagging, then you definitely want to ask why. But, it, but you know, so I think that would be, I think that's probably the, the simplest and the most logical suggestion that I've heard. Well, sorry, certainly the simplest solution that actually gets us a lot of the way there. Actually saying, well, look, there has to be some sort of measurement. You can't have a situation where people don't get measured. And we can't say, well, we'll find out at the end of 40 years if your strategy worked. We can't do that. Um, and we can't sort of say, well, we'll look over 10 years. We can't just say, well, in the long run, people are going to be better off. We actually want to know, well, hang on, you're collecting fees for this. Are you actually delivering some value here? But at the same time, this isn't a simple, this isn't a simple question to answer. I mean, you know, if we think of investment risk, it's multidimensional. You don't want to go back to just one measure and say, oh, no, that's bad. And so I think if it were to be converted to a situation where, look, be really clear, I mean, we're going to put this out there so people can look at it anyway. So that's already enough of a, a disincentive to sort of fail, but or to fail as in to underperform under the test parameters. But then if it's then actually, well, we're actually going to understand what has led to this. Why have you, to use the term, underperformed? You know, that, so that's, I mean, the other method that you've, that has been put up is, of course, having benchmarks more specific to the actual strategy. Now, that either leads to a lot more complexity that APRA is forced to manage, or it actually leads to the other option that people have suggested, which I personally um, don't agree with just because it's just too open to gaming, is I let people select their own benchmarks. Well, again, then APRA has to then actually go in and, well, no, is this the right benchmark or not? So I think the simplest way of, of improving it and keeping a lot of the benefits of having the performance test would be to create a situation where, you know, if you're failing, you're going to be investigated. and Or, sorry, if you underperform by the 50 basis points. Because, again, it, let, let's just think about this as each super fund has a mandate from the government, which APRA administers. Well, then the way you look at that is say, well, if you have underperformed, we are now going to investigate. And then there's a whole lot of things that can then happen on a bilateral basis at that yeah. point. So to a degree, what is missing from this test is the please explain part. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes there are legitimate reasons oh. why they're underperformed and yeah. they can be explained and it might yeah. even make sense. Yeah. Um, and usually, I think in most of EPRA's guidelines, there, there is that clause where they say, mm. if you deviate from this, then please explain what you're yeah. doing. Yes. Um, that there is no option in That's the correct. performance test with that. No. And I think one of the other points is, if again, if we think about performance measurement, we think about investment governance, outperformance also needs to be investigated. Yeah. You know, because some of the worst problems in history occurred with something that seemed to be generating great profits. And taking too much risk. Exactly. And that's the thing, you know. I, I mean, I remember one fund. It was, um, it was actually a large retail fund, but they had an option 
where uh, or they had they had a manager that was an index manager that managed to outperform quite significantly, and they um they quickly terminated that manager. Yeah, because it's not doing what it says exactly. on the team, right? Exactly. So let's go into that. Um, you, at APRA, you were looking after investment risk yeah. in, the, in the superannuation industry. Yeah. Um, we started this conversation talking about governance. Well, yeah. What are some of the, the worst failures of governance yeah. you've seen, uh, if you can talk about it? <laughs> I'll, I'll talk in general terms. I think, you know, and I think what's got to be kept in mind is that I was at APRA a long time. And so the industry's evolved, both in terms of its size and its sophistication. Um, and that's not just within Australia, that's globally. And, of course, APRA, you know, did a lot of work over that time, you know. I mean, when I began at APRA, there was, you know, less attention on superannuation anyway, but also we didn't have, for example, the prudential standards. But I think if I, if I think back to the, the, the worst, I'll call it the worst governance, the worst investment governance failures I saw, it often related to your situation where you had a board that was almost, they'd been either developed or often had sold to them a strategy which involved a great deal of complexity, which they didn't understand. They didn't have the management team to execute on that strategy. They were still in that mode of, I'll call it, selecting managers or almost selecting projects. Um, didn't actually understand what was driving the strategy. I remember hearing comments like, well, you know, the asset consultant told us to do it. When I started at APRA, there used to be people where we would sit in a room with funds and we'd ask the questions and they literally point it straight to the asset consultant. So, you know, again, I mean, I'm talking a long time ago now. Yeah. Um, but so the, the worst, but the, if I think of the, the worst, you know, two or three situations I saw, it was a situation where the fund had invested in all sorts of things. The board didn't really understand those things. It didn't understand what it was investing in. Um, the reporting couldn't have told them anyway. Uh, the reporting might have contained errors. Um, getting involved in things they really didn't understand. I mean, I, you know, I remember one situation where a fund had gotten involved in effectively a hedge fund strategy, but it was actually something where there was a, a huge... I mean, I know hedge funds often have this, but there was a huge amount of gearing in this where, you know, so you had, you know, within the vehicle, huge mismatch risks, which potentially could have wiped out the whole investment. And indeed, you know, uh, situations where you'd have, you know, whether it was a private equity or a private debt type thing, but, you know, money, good money following bad... Uh, those sorts of things. So certainly a range of things. One situation where even you had a CEO who was, you know, almost the CIO as well and the decisions weren't necessarily great. And then there wasn't a board that could actually provide effective oversight because they couldn't ask the right questions. They couldn't ask the question that, say, when the numbers came in and they were good, well, why are they so good or what's going on here? You know, th that belief in the... Um, I won't call it the magic pudding, but the belief that you can outperform everyone else and there's no actual risk captured within that, you know. Oh, no, no, we're lower risk, but we get higher returns, you know. I think the, the classic one was always getting told that, um, oh, we invest in private equity because it's lower risk and, you know, and it gives us higher returns and it's lower risk. And, of course, you can imagine what happens and that goes through the optimizer. The optimizer actually tells you we'll put everything in private equity. So those are some of the worst things I'd seen where, um, you know, and again, and, and the difficulty then, Vowder, is, when you talk with the board about those issues and there's a, there's a lack of awareness of the issues that you are bringing up, they not only don't understand the issue, but they don't even know that it exists. So I think you had some interesting reactions from boards over the years to, to oh, yeah. raising some of these problems. But I think that what you said at the, at the last point, that they, yeah. they, they don't even understand the problem yeah. when you give it to them. That's correct. They don't see that there is an issue. That's um, correct. 
that sort of comes back as well to that the discussion around the technical expertise. Yeah. If, if you can't see when a problem is presenting itself, then, then there's no chance that they can solve it. Well, that's correct. That's correct. So what were some of these reactions uh, that uh, you had to deal with? Yeah, well, the reactions varied. I think the worst reactions were actually where, because, because when you, and I want to be really, really clear, this was a long time ago and this did not happen frequently. So the worst situations were when you, you had these, you know, um, badly constructed investment portfolios, investing in things that, you know, if it wasn't people's money, it would actually be quite funny. <laughs> like it would be something you would probably put in like as a comedy skit somewhere. Um, and so, you know, I mean, you get a bit of a black sense of humour, I think, when you're a regulator. But um, the worst reactions then, because then once you get those those situations, you then are actually saying, well, actually, we don't think the board is capable here. And the worst reactions are actually when they sort of don't quite realise that. So, you know, I know one occasion the board was quite offended that we said that, which I thought was positive because it meant that they actually understood that what we were saying wasn't good. And, and, and I would also emphasise in, in the example of the board I'm thinking of where they were offended, they, um, they really, um, after they got beyond their offence, they really um, grasped the nettle and they really uh, put a lot of work and a lot of effort into working out what skills they needed on the board getting the right skills on the board. They got the CEO to be a CEO and not be the CIO. And, uh, and my opinion is I thought he w- – I actually learned a lot from this um, – learned a lot from the CEO. Um, he, in my opinion, once he did that, he was a really good CEO. Um, and then he got the right person to be the CIO, you know. And he, you know, he took it on board as well because it was – but that was very confronting. But I think that, you know, they were prepared – to take that on board after almost, you know, ordering us off the premises and, and you know, quite, but again, they, you know, and I suppose it's that thing that they took offence because they cared. You know, they really did want to do the right thing and they were there for the right reason. Maybe they had not, they didn't have everything right, but they really wanted to do the right thing. But there were unfortunately some situations where even that sort of, you know, well, they didn't take offence and they didn't quite, they didn't seem to recognise the issue even. Um, and so those are, now, those were difficult situations. Yeah, yeah I can imagine so. Um, so at the moment, uh, we're sort of in a consultation period yeah. around uh, SPS 530 that I think deals with a lot of investment yeah. governance issues. And if you sort of compare the earlier version yeah. to this one, it, it has expanded quite a lot. Yeah. Um, all problem solved? Uh, well, I mean, no. <laughs> well, that's not possible. I mean, I think, and I think this is the thing, right? Because if we think about governance, governance isn't, you know, it's not solving a mathematical problem. It's not something where you can go in with a sheet of paper and say, right, let's just, you know, we'll, we'll sit down and let's go through these 20 points. And if you put in these 20 things and all of your governance will be solved, it'll be right. Because it's very much dependent on the organisation, the context, what it's trying to achieve, how it's trying to achieve it. So I don't think it's feasible to expect any prudential standard covering any topic, but certainly not investment governance, you know, where, you know, there are a few, very few black and white answers. And so SPS 530 can't solve every potential problem. You know, I think if we think about the changes, it's really calling for a lot more formalisation. It's really calling for a lot more, you know, uh, developing proper metrics. And what I think is in many ways what the prudential standard is trying to do is really move the investment risk management into more of an adaptive phase. So what I mean by that, Vada, is if we think of um, 
whether it's valuation, whether it's liquidity, whether it's stress testing, there's a real emphasis on understanding what are the ad hoc, the triggers that would make you do something in the middle. So it's not just about we run stress testing every year, six months, quarterly, as, as the new SPG is saying. Um, it's not about we revalue assets every six months, 12 months, three months, whatever it might be. It's about what's the signal. So it's really about trying to get people to build the radar. And that's really what risk management needs to be. It's about having the radar to say, what are the signals? A bit like to your Russia question. What are the signals to tell us, hang on, maybe we need to get out, or hang on, we better go away and run another stress test to understand where are we today? What's happening today? Not just what were we two months ago, but do we need to run one today? You know, the valuation. Has something happened that tells us that we need to go away and get another value? Not, oh yeah, um, it's, it's the time again, let's go away and try and get another value. And I think that's probably, to me, I would say if I had to pick the one biggest thing conceptually about the new SPS 530, it is trying to get the concept of adaptive risk management, of actually building the radar to, so you actually take action. So thinking more of conditions rather than time. And if you think that's really what risk management needs to be about. Yeah, it's a more proactive approach to, Absolutely. to risk rather than having processes and routines in place that, yeah. you know, just are set and forget. You need to yeah. be constantly on top of it. Absolutely. So at the moment, um, you're at Deloitte also yeah. looking at governance-related yeah. uh, issues. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit uh, what, what are you up to at the moment? Yeah, so look, so, well, I mean, I mentioned SPG 530, so that's kind of the most immediate reaction. Uh, we're certainly having clients come to us and say, oh, this is a lot more detail than we expected. We thought SPS 530 was fine, but um, what does this mean? And what does it mean for our business? And so working through with clients, you know, this is what the new requirements mean for you. Um, we've mentioned ESG. I mean, the ESG is is a very complex area, you know, and it's very much about, it's not, again, it's not just about, well, what factors do I care about? It's understanding, are they investable? It's actually thinking about, well, how does this link through to my investment strategy? And, and remember, every one of those ESG factors, the first thing you've got to understand is, well, how important do I think they are to my portfolio? Now, so I'm, I'm talking almost purely now just about the investment and financial implications. You know, how important is it to my portfolio? Understanding how does it manifest? I think one of the things, I mean, we've spoken about internalisation at the beginning and about bringing more of that total portfolio approach and we know the total, sorry, the total portfolio view, which of course supports a total portfolio approach, which is becoming much more common. And I think that's really important when we think about how do environmental factors or how sorry how do all of those factors hammer through the portfolio you think about something like climate risk it's not something that it doesn't really care what the asset class is the implication will be different but you need to understand well what's the implication for my debt portfolio for my equity portfolio what's implication for my property and infrastructure portfolios you know even if you think about the types of risks the physical risk is going to hit through certain portfolios more than others as in certain asset classes and then you start thinking about things like geographic concentration. So the ESG area is one area where we spend a lot of time and a lot of effort with clients. Um, and often it goes right back to that most basic thing of, okay, so which factors are you actually thinking about and are you interested in? Everyone has to think about climate risk because they've been ordered to. So, so that's the, that first thing. And then it's about saying, well, okay, how then are you structuring? You know, does your strategy take account? So it's actually working it through that whole investment value chain. You know, how are you working that through? 
Have you thought about how this impacts performance? Are you, how is it impacting on your performance measurement? Where are you getting the data from? Can you get the data? You know, how much do these things... And then thinking... And then, of course, at the very back end, you've got to then still say, okay, so as you're setting your risk budget, how much does this occupy and how does it link back to your YFYS problem? It actually links through to the greenwashing question because clearly, you know, greenwashing is sort of a mismatch between what you say and what you do. Yeah. Now, you can always argue, does it start with what you say? Does it start with what you do? Well, the truth is that those two have to match up. Yes. Right? And the reality is in choice superannuation, a lot of the decision around whether this is appropriate for the member is actually made by the member. The member picks it. Yeah. So if you say something simple, like we don't invest in fossil fuels, okay, so how are you not investing in fossil fuels? Or did you just go and invest in the index? If you've invested in the index, then the question is how are you doing this? And then also, and even within that, what does that actually mean? You know, am I telling you that we don't in any way invest in something that has some exposure to fossil fuels ever or are we saying that you have no economic exposure so can I invest in it but then I'll back it out with I'll call it a derivative or something so you have no economic exposure what do we actually mean and so it's working through with clients about all of those questions you know what does it mean and then understanding well who's got the job of doing these things yeah you well know? it seems that the regulator and I think this comes more from mm. from ASIC and uh, yeah uh, they take a quite a hard line on what that exposure is. They, they yeah. almost have to find it yeah. because in, in a, a recent case, they said, yeah. well, if you say you don't invest in tobacco, you can also not uh, invest in supermarkets because they sell tobacco. Yeah. That's, that's quite a different sort yeah. of approach than what has been yes. the, the usual approach or yeah. I don't know if it's best practice, but there, there's much more around materiality Absolutely. rather than a blanket yeah. You can't do this. Um, yeah. To a degree, that choice is a bit taken away now from funds. Well, yes, and I suspect it's something we're going to have to see. You know, it's, it's hard to project how this will exactly play out because there's always been that question of materiality um, because the reality is, you know, how far do we go? Like if we're going to say, so if we think of fossil fuels, whether we like it or not, our society still requires fossil fuels. There's almost every single industry in this country that actually is using fossil fuels. Yep. You know, I mean, the majority of our... I believe it's still the case that the majority of our electricity across this country, not in every part of the country, but across the country, is coming from coal. So that means, well, any business in this country, unless they're purely self-sufficient... Um, they're off the grid, almost every business in this country is using fossil fuels. Yeah. So, you know, so I think that's, it, you know, yes, ASIC has said this, it, we're going to have to see what then happens yeah. because I think it's, uh, you know, it's a very complicated area which goes to that whole question of, well, yeah, is it material? What does it mean? How much of their business relies on this? Um, you know, how far do we go? Yeah. Do we ban all the banks? Because, I mean, I mean... You know, unless banks are banning whole chunks of the economy themselves, um, you know. So I think it's it's something that we're at a particular point today, and we're going to have to see how this actually evolves from here. Yeah, yeah, because you can go very far down that rabbit yeah. hole if you want to yeah. clean your portfolio from any exposure. That's to correct. Anything. Yeah. Well, Greg, thank you very much for your time today. It was a great conversation. No, thank you very much. It was it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.